Have you ever wondered if God always knows what he's doing when he gives something to us or allows something in our life? Does a passage like Romans 8.28 always apply to our lives? That verse says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Today we're going to examine the story of Abraham and his son Isaac at a time that could have caused deep questioning to see how this man called the friend of God responded. Now, next week is Father's Day, and I want you to consider this as somewhat like a countdown to Christmas. Not that I have a vested interest, even though I am a father and a grandfather. This is just a public service announcement. I was in Spokane, Washington recently for our denomination's biannual council, and I saw this signboard outside of a local shop. It says, June 18th is Father's Day. Don't blow it. Did you know the Bible talks about Father's Day presents and not one of those wild, wide ties or soap on a rope? We're going to learn about a great Father's Day gift today. So let's open in prayer. Father, we're going to be looking at your word, your recorded word that you have preserved for all time for us. Would you make these ancient words just as valuable and just as instructive today as the day they were written? In Jesus' name, amen. There are some great stories about fathers in the Bible. Of course, we can go back and start with, Ab- uh, with Adam, who was the father of the entire human race. And then, of course, there's Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation. But then there are others that aren't quite so good. And I think of Jesse, the father of King David, who actually forgot that he had a son named David. And then there's Lot, the nephew of Abraham, who got drunk and then had an incestuous relationship with his daughters. Then there's also Eli, who was a priest and one of the judges of Israel. Judges are what they had to lead the people before they had kings. And his sons used the priesthood for their own personal gain by taking advantage of people that came to worship. Well, how about some examples of uh, bad fathers outside of Scripture? Here's one from the movies. Can you imagine having Darth Vader for a father? I mean, talk about an absentee father, right? And then he finally shows up, and what does he do? He cuts off his son's hand with a lightsaber. Or maybe a better example might be one from real history. Joseph Stalin, the cold-blooded dictator of the USSR. He was one of the most evil dictators in living memory, and not surprisingly, he wasn't a very good father either. When his son Yakov tried to commit suicide by shooting himself, and he wasn't successful, Stalin said this about his son, he can't even shoot straight. Then when Yakov was fighting for the Soviet army, he was taken prisoner by Nazi Germany in 1941, and so his dad, Joseph Stalin, in order to punish his son, had his son's wife put in prison. And later, he refused to do a prisoner swap with Germany uh, to get his son's safe return, saying, I will not trade a marshal for a lieutenant. Two years later, Yakov died in a German concentration camp, and there are people that said that he committed suicide by throwing himself onto an electric fence. Now, what about my own heritage? Well, I think I had the best dad ever. 
He loved my mom, giving me a life lesson on how to be a man. He loved God and served him all of his life, and he loved me and my sister. Matter of fact, in, I've said many times, my dad was my hero. Well, today's sermon is about the best Father's Day present ever. Let me give you a summary narrative of Abram, later known as Abraham. As you heard me say earlier, he was the father of the Hebrew people. And we know that God promised that his descendants would be God's chosen people, that they would be more numerous than the sands of the sea, that through his line, ultimately, it would lead to the birth of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, sent by God to earth. And all of this was promised to Abraham and Sarah when they had no children and were far too old to have any children. And the promise was not fulfilled until Abraham was a 100 years old and his wife was 90 years old. Now, let me just pause for a minute and ask by show of hands, how many of you are 90? Let's go back. How many of you are 80 years old or older? Raise your hand. If you're sitting next to somebody, you might have to help them hold their hand up. I'm just kidding. All right. So how many of you that are in that category would like to be starting a family right now? Morning sickness, childbirth, 2 a.m. feedings, colic. Any of you up for that? I didn't think so. Well, let's get to our passage. We are in Genesis chapter 22. I encourage you to open your Bibles there. Uh, If you've got it on your electronic device, feel free to look at that as well. And then there is the Bible in front of you. Genesis is the very first uh, book in the, the Bible, so that's easy to find. And we're in chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And Abraham said, Here I am. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. What? God wants Abraham to do what? Well, it's right here in the Bible. God told Abraham to make his son a burnt offering. Now, that just doesn't make any sense to us, does it? So we better get back to the Bible and find out what he says. Picking it up at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And Abraham cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I have to pause again before we get to the part where Abraham says, we will come again to you. Abraham said, we are going over there to worship. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, and Abraham understands that this is going to be an act of worship. He's not angry with God. He's not questioning God. He's not begging God to give him a way out of this. When God allows something difficult to happen in your life or in my life, what's our response? Do we get angry and ask God why he would allow something like this to happen? Do we question God's goodness or his motives? 
Do we ask or beg or even demand God to give us a way out? Let's make this personal. You lost your job. Your spouse wants out of the marriage. You were just told that you have cancer or that you need open-heart surgery. How do you respond to God in a situation like that? It's easy to say that you trust God when you are gainfully employed and you have a healthy savings account. It's easy to trust God when your spouse treats you with love and respect. It's easy to say you trust God when your biggest health concern is the 10 pounds or more that you need to lose before summer starts. But we do have to get back to that other part, the part where Abraham said with confidence that he and his son would return. Abraham didn't know how that would happen, but he firmly believed that it would happen. Maybe he thought that God would raise Isaac back to life, although as far as we know, that had never happened before at that time. Maybe Abraham thought that God just wanted to see if he was willing to obey. We don't know what was going through Abraham's mind, but we do see him acting in obedience with complete trust in his God. Now let's pick it up again in verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac's no dummy. He sees everything for the sacrifice except the sacrifice. Back to verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering for my son. So they both of them went together. This would be a good time to tell you that Isaac is not a baby, right? I mean, he's speaking intelligently with his father. And neither is he a little toddler or a little boy. Because Abraham had put all of that wood for the sacrifice on his shoulders and back and had him carry it up the mountain. This tells me that he was at least a teenager and maybe more likely that he's a young man. So he could have resisted if he wanted to. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now when Isaac starts putting this puzzle together, he's old enough, he's strong enough that he could have resisted. He's also smart enough to know what's about to happen, but Isaac didn't resist. What does that tell us? I think it tells us that Isaac also had faith in God. Can you imagine just laying there? He knew all about sacrifices and what happened once the animal to be sacrificed was tied to the altar. He saw his father raise the knife above him with every intention of plunging it down because that is what God had told his father to do. And that's how it had happened every other time Isaac had watched his father, Abraham, sacrifice something on the altar. Back to uh, Genesis 22 and verse 11. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Now, I want you to give me some poetic license here, and I want you to allow me to dramatize this a bit. Do you see in the passage the angel's first word, Abraham, and then there's no uh, exclamation point after it? Let me tell you or possibly just remind you that in the Hebrew text, the language of the Old Testament that it was written in, there are no punctuation marks of any kind. Those came after when the Bible was translated into different languages that did use punctuation marks. I'm going to be presumptuous here and say that I think the translators of the English Standard Version, the ESV, that we're reading this morning, uh, that they probably got that part wrong. I think, first of all, that the angel was not acting or speaking merely on his own authority. I believe that God the Father commanded that angel who was watching with bated breath at the edge of heaven, wondering what Abraham was going to do. And God commanded that angel, I believe, to shout, Abraham, with urgency, in order to get Abraham's attention in time. And then again, Abraham, this time with uncontrolled joy in his voice. Let me act this out for you, okay? I'm going to play the part of Clarence the Angel, Oh, wait, that's from It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, I'll be Scott the angel. I know it's a stretch, but just stay with me, okay? So I'm leaning forward as if I'm looking over the edge of heaven down at Mount Moriah. And then I look back at God expectantly and then back at Moriah, looking quickly as God gives the command to shout, Abraham, and I can almost picture this angel jumping up and down and waving his arms to get Abraham's attention. And then smiling with excitement as Abraham looks up to heaven and shouting with pure joy, Abraham! And I don't think Abraham just said, here I am over here. I think he shouts, here I am! Almost as if saying, I knew something like this was coming. I know God too well for anything else to happen. Then the angel continued that message In verse 12, and the angel said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, it's at this point that we're probably all thinking, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like what an angel would say. That sounds like something that God would say. So let's go back to verse 10 and read that description again. It doesn't just say an angel. It says the angel of the Lord. The precise identity of the angel of the Lord is not given here. However, there are many important clues to his identity. There are both Old Testament and New Testament references to angels, plural, of the Lord, an angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord. And it seems when the definite article the is used, it is specifying a unique being separate from the other angels. The angel of the Lord speaks like God, as we saw in verse 12. He identifies himself with God, and he exercises the responsibilities of God. This is one of those passages But there are others. They're up on the screen there behind me. There are several in Genesis, one in Exodus, 
one, two, three, four in Judges, one in Second Samuel, and three in Zechariah. And in several of these appearances, those who saw an angel of the Lord feared for their lives because it says that they had seen the Lord. Therefore, it's clear that in, in at least some instances, the angel of the Lord is what we would call, and here's your big word for the day, theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God in physical form. Sometimes it's in the form of an angel, but Abraham had seen a theophany earlier in his life, and it appeared to be a man. So let's, with that in mind, let's go back to verse 12 and read that again. The angel of the Lord said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. There are times when God tells us to let go of something. When he does that, it's usually because that thing has become so important to us, it's almost as if that thing has its clutches on us rather than the other way around. Mine is one of the first words a child ever learns. Someone takes something that I want and I yell, mine! It's a human nature that we try to hold on to things and possess them. This reminded me of a quote from a dear saint from many years ago, Corey Ten Boom, who was uh, just a simple woman, a Dutch woman, who was used by God to save many Jewish people from the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And she said, I have learned to hold all things loosely so God will not have to pry them out of my hands. Pastor Chuck Swindoll says that these things, these treasures, fall into four categories. The first would be our possessions. Maybe it's a home or a boat or a car. They could be expensive, but they don't have to be. An example of an inexpensive possession could be an heirloom or a keepsake. The second category would be our vocation, career or job, but it could even be a calling. It doesn't take long for panic to set in when a job becomes threatened. And this goes beyond providing for our needs because uh, many people, our job becomes our identity. We introduce ourselves and you ask me what I do. And instead of telling you the things that I do, I tell you, this is who I am. I am a pastor. I don't explain my pastoral duties to you. I say, I am a pastor. To have your calling or your vocation compromised is to lose one of those reasons for living. The third category is our dreams. When we are young, our dreams keep us going through difficult times. We can struggle through setbacks and disappointments because we expect better days to follow. We can endure seasons of deprivation and sacrifice in pursuit of a goal. 
think of an Olympic athlete and all the things that they give up. They give up junk food. They give up staying out late and, and going to parties. They uh, exercise to the point of exhaustion. And all of that is done with the goal in mind of standing on the podium and having a medal placed around their neck. The fourth category of treasure is our relationships. We can treat people as a treasure, a parent that we depend upon, a child we worry constantly about, a love that we fear losing, or a friend that means the world to us. Let me give you an illustration of this. On April 4th, 2010, I received a phone call that my father, who I told you earlier was my hero, had died that morning, Easter morning at sunrise. It was almost unbearable for me to hear those words. I had loved my dad for 46 years, first as a parent and a guardian, and then after I was a man myself, although he was still my parent, he became my mentor and my advisor and my friend. My first thoughts upon hearing of his death was that he had died too young, that I was too young to not have a father anymore. I wanted him to live forever, or at least for another 20 years. And then watching his casket lowered into the grave nearly broke my heart. And I still get emotional thinking about it. I treasured my relationship with my dad. So when it comes to finding a treasure in a relationship, I speak from experience. Genesis 22 reveals a man, Abraham, with a treasure so valuable and so cherished that it threatened to compromise his relationship with God. Abraham didn't treasure money or possessions. He didn't treasure his calling. He didn't treasure his dreams. But his long-awaited son Isaac was his treasure, and he would have sacrificed anything for that young man. There's no doubt about it. Abraham adored his son. Let's talk about this as being Abraham's final exam. As a father, I can easily imagine the anguished questions that Abraham must have had. Why do I have to give up my son? How is Isaac going to produce descendants if he's not even alive? How can God require human sacrifice, which is so similar to what the pagans around me in Canaan practice? But we don't see any indication of hesitation on the part of Abraham. There's no resistance, no argument, no bargaining or pleading or delay, not even any reluctance. Actually, the Bible says that Abraham got up early the very next morning to begin obeying God. What must he have been thinking? As this story unfolds, don't lose touch with the humanity of this drama. Put yourself in Abraham's sandals. Feel the warmth of your son walking by your side. Smell the firewood as you walk up that mountain trail. Feel the knife bumping against your hip with every step that you take. See the summit where you will plunge that razor-sharp knife into the chest of your son. And now I want you to pause right here and examine the emotions that you're feeling. Do you have anything you want to ask God at this moment? 
We have the advantage of reading this story 4,000 years after it happened, accurately recorded for us by the pen of Moses. But Abraham didn't know the end of the story at that time. He didn't know what was going to happen next. But as we read in verse 8, Abraham was a man of great faith, which was proved when he said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. A paraphrase of that statement might read, God will see to it. Just you wait and see. Abraham's statement did more than reassure his son Isaac. It reflected Abraham's utter confidence that God would do what was right. Because when it comes time to make the offering, it would have been very easy for a young man who is young enough and strong enough to carry a load of wood up on a mountain to resist the efforts of a man who may have been 120 years old by this time. Actually, it wasn't even that Isaac didn't resist his father. He must have actually helped Abraham get him onto the altar because Abraham was far too old to lift a strong young man like Isaac onto the altar by himself. When Abraham raised his knife-wielding hand in obedience, he passed that ultimate test. God had allowed all of this to play out to the very last moment to demonstrate the completeness of Abraham's faith. It demonstrated Abraham's faith not only to the world at that time, but also to us who have lived thousands of years removed from that event. But it also proved the completeness of Abraham's faith to Abraham himself. Just as Abraham had told his son, God saw to the, to the sacrifice for himself. Let's pick it up in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. A very literal translation of that name would be, the Lord will see to it. I want us to take a look at how one of the writers of the New Testament interprets this true story. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, which is on the screen behind me. It's just affectionately known, this chapter is, as God's hall of faith. And we'll pick it up in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him back from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham, even though he was not aware of it, was prophesying to an event that was 2,000 years into the future. God would indeed see to a lamb, capital L, lamb, for himself. God's own son, the lamb of God, would become the atoning sacrifice to free us from the death we deserve as a consequence for our sin and our sin nature. After all that Abraham and Sarah had been through over the decades, God tested Abraham's faith by instructing him to do the hardest thing that he could be asked to do. In one act of trust and obedience, Abraham was to surrender the fulfillment of God's promise 
the center of his dreams, his one and only son. Perhaps more shocking than God's incomprehensible command to sacrifice Isaac was Abraham's immediate obedience. No arguing, no hesitation, no bargaining, no reminding God how long he and Sarah had waited. Instead, Abraham got up early and saddled up his donkey and headed out to obey. Now, this kind of faith freed Abraham to fully obey a command he didn't entirely understand. How could Abraham reconcile the command to offer Isaac as a burnt offering with his confidence that he and Isaac would both come down from the mountain? I mean, it's right there in Hebrews eleven nineteen. Abraham considered that God was able to even to raise him from the dead. Now, let's be perfectly honest here. To an outsider, Abraham's actions would have looked like the deranged deeds of a maniac, not the faithful obedience of a man of God. And wicked people today commit horrible acts and then falsely claim that God directed them to do it. So what is the difference between those criminal acts and the great patriarch of our faith? Abraham's unflinching trust and unhesitating obedience rested on a foundation of solid theology. Abraham knew that God is completely good and never commands evil, so Abraham had to reconcile what he knew about God with what this situation seemed to indicate. Abraham knew that God is completely wise and must have had a plan, even though God had not revealed that plan yet to Abraham. Abraham knew that God is completely just and would not treat Isaac unfairly. Abraham knew that God is completely powerful and would keep his promises, even when it was beyond Abraham's ability to see how that could happen. Even in the midst of an apparent contradiction, Abraham could trust and obey. Not because he knew exactly what was going on, but because he knew that God did. And when Abraham demonstrated his faith through this extreme test, God provided a sacrifice for Abraham to offer in place of Isaac. Now, when I'm getting to the end of any uh, lesson or sermon, that was a clue I'm getting towards the end. I always ask myself this question, so what? What difference does this make tomorrow morning? Okay, it's, it's interesting this morning, but what about tomorrow morning? Is this merely a history lesson, something that happened to one man 4,000 years ago, or does God want us to learn something from this today? Are you or have you or can you even imagine that you will face what appears to be an overwhelming, maybe even an unfair trial in life? God saw to Abraham's test and God saw to supplying everything that Abraham needed. God will always do that. God will always see to it. God has even given himself a name to remind us, Jehovah Jireh. That means the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to this. Without risk, there is no need for trust. Risk is a necessary factor in every trial. But God will see to it. God will provide. God will see to your provision and protection as you obey. 
your child just graduated from high school or college and you're concerned about the decisions that they're making. Or maybe you're that one that just graduated from high school or college and you're looking at the future and it looks so bleak that anxiety begins to surround you and it feels like it's going to crush you. The doctor is giving you news that you had not hoped for and your future looks bleak. Every time you think the doctor couldn't possibly give you more bad news, he does. Your grandchild's life has been snuffed out long before their time, and it feels like your heart is going to break, and all the breath has been sucked out of your lungs. Your spouse, who promised to love and cherish you until death separated you, breaks that sacred vow and tells you that they found somebody better. Your lifelong partner has been diagnosed with a memory-robbing disease. They hardly seem like the person that you have loved through good times and bad. Maybe they even have trouble remembering you now. And all these things break your heart. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. God will see to this. Remember that the Lord is with you right now and he is providing for you. Look for God's provision. Remember that God is with you and is providing for you. Think about what provision you need that only God can provide. I'm not talking about a want or a desire. I'm talking about an essential provision. What do you really need that only God can provide? But don't presume to tell God what to do or how he should provide for you. Simply trust him and accept whatever he chooses to provide. Rest in his unfailing love and his righteous character. Let me share with you three truths that we can draw from Abraham's experience. What you cling to is usually what God asks you to release. God knows what treasure has captured your heart. And he will give you the opportunity to show to ourselves and those around what we value the most. He does this by asking you to release your grip on what you treasure the most. What is that treasure in your life? Is it a possession? Is it a career or your calling? Is it a dream that you've been treasuring in your heart? Or is it a relationship? What would it look like to release that treasure? And are you willing to do it? The second truth is what you release, God often replaces with something far more valuable. Honestly, we don't like risk associated with our faith. We like everything nice and neat so that there are no surprises. But God calls us to trust him, not merely his methods. I'm not telling you to live irresponsibly, but rather to release what you are treasuring to God. God will honor your risk by giving you something far more valuable than you release. And the third truth is, when God replaces, he also rewards After Abraham showed his obedience and his complete trust in God, God spoke to Abraham again. Let's pick up the the end of this story in verse 16. And God said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed me. God expects a lot from those who claim to trust in him. The risk of faith has to be daunting, otherwise it really isn't faith. But God isn't merely fair. He delights to surprise us by exceeding our expectations. He rewards risky faith with blessings far beyond our ability to guess. And isn't it true? Abraham's descendants truly are innumerable. And to this day, God preserves his chosen people, Israel, with great plans for his future. And God did indeed bless all the peoples of the earth through the coming of the Messiah through the line of Abraham. Why does he do these things? Because God keeps his promises. And when God keeps his promises, he blows us away with those things that we had expected. In closing, I'm going to pray the prayer of A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. And maybe you need to pray this too. Would you close your eyes, quiet your hearts as I pray this prayer? Father, I want to know you, but my cowardly heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide them from you, from you, the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that you may enter and dwell there without rival. Then you will make the place of your feet glorious, and then my heart will have no need of the sun to shine in it, for you will be the light of it, and there will be no night there. And while your eyes are still closed, there are some people here this morning that are thinking, that kind of faith is crazy. I need answers before I'm willing to trust. But let me ask you, is your way working for you? Is your heart content or do you fear the future? And if you completely understood God, he wouldn't be God. How can the creation know everything about its creator? Maybe it's time to give up your pride and the false thought that you can handle life on your own. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Maybe today is the day that you need to pray this prayer. And if you are ready to put your trust in God, I want you just to stand up and pray this prayer with me. But I want everybody to pray just like we did on Easter Sunday so that there's no embarrassment. And maybe you can even learn through example and repetition how to lead somebody in a prayer to become a child of God. So would you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. But I know that you are the Savior who died on the cross for me. You paid the price for my sins. I ask you to forgive me now. I repent of my sin.
and I choose to follow you. From this moment forward, as my Savior and Lord, as my God and my friend, in Jesus' name, amen.